We have been in a four-part series called Hold Fast to Jesus, and uh, we're just going through chapter by chapter in the letter of Philippians to learn what Paul says about keeping our attention on him, because this is kind of the first truth that's been uh, behind this series. The goal of our spiritual lives is to hold fast to Jesus, to keep our attention on him, to focus on him, to make sure we never lose sight of him. But the second truth is this. One of the great enemies of our spiritual lives is distraction. Each week we've been looking at different distractions that the Apostle Paul has mentioned in his own life and also applies to us. And the first distraction is this, our life circumstances. We see in the Apostle Paul situation, he's writing this letter from jail. You can imagine that his situation is a big distraction to him. In the second week, in chapter 2, we talked about how sometimes even very admirable, noble Christian goals that we have can be detached from the example of Jesus. What he actually said and did, that kind of turns our attention away from him, and we just try to get about doing these goals on our own. The third distraction is just forgetfulness. We don't remember what Jesus has done for us. We don't put much attention on the fact that our lives changed a lot when we encountered Christ. And each week we talked about how Paul shifts the, shifts the attention away from these distractions and suggests an alternative to us. The first In the first week, week we saw how Paul rethinks his circumstances in light of Jesus and let him, instead of his uh, circumstances distracting him from Jesus. In the second week in chapter 2 of Philippians, we saw that Paul revisits the story of Jesus. He retells his life story. And then finally, in chapter 3, last week, we see that Paul remembers what Jesus has done for him. Now, the fourth distraction we're talking about this week can be summarized in one word, which is worry. Have you ever been so worried about what's going on in your life? The frenzied fretfulness that you feel in the pit of your stomach has distracted you from your relationship with Christ. I think it's fair to say that many Americans struggle with worry. If you ask any doctor or therapist, they will tell you that they are seeing rises in rates of patients with diagnosed chronic anxiety. Just in my personal experience, a lot of my peers and I struggle with debilitating worry about our jobs or our relationships or the past or present or future. I think it may be fair to say this, the era of the hippie is over. You are not going to encounter someone on the streets who says, Relax, man. Right? That, that wouldn't even be taken seriously today because we view worry almost like a virtue. Have you ever had this in conversations? Hey, I'm a worrier. That means I'm a good person, right? Because I care so much. And I think if this is right, if my, my unprofessional diagnosis is correct, if we struggle with worry, then this chapter should be of direct relevance to you, because worry is not just a universal human experience, it's actually a spiritual issue to face head on. Our relationships with Jesus will be impacted by worry, because worry itself shifts Jesus out of your line of sight so that you can fixate on your anxiety. So, whether you're a Christian or not, we're going to reread and look at this chapter again, but we're not going to do it in the traditional way that I do, where we go from you know, the first verse in the chapter all the way to the end. We're going to look for clues 
to see different sources of anxiety in this church in Philippi. And I know it's dangerous to analyze the minds of people who lived 2,000 years ago, but I think if we look at what Paul actually writes down, we can tell this is a real practical issue facing the church, okay? So the first anxiety that we see, and we see this from the very first verse in the chapter, is the fact that there are two leaders in the church who are not understanding each other. Now, we don't know the source of the misunderstanding. We don't know if it's a disagreement about doctrine, about the gospel. We don't know if it's a personality issue that these two women have big personalities and they're bumping up against each other. We don't know if it was just a miscommunication and they just need to clear things up. Whatever is going on, it's enough for Paul to say this. I plead. In some translations, it says urge or exhort Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, this is one of Paul's co-workers, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, what you got to remember is these letters were sent to, to churches and they were read out loud on Sunday mornings. Imagine the awkward silence that would ensue after the reader of this letter says, I plead with Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord. Imagine if I did that one Sunday. I just picked two of y'all who were mad at each other and I say, I need y'all to sort your stuff out. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? But Paul thinks it's so important to the life of this church to say, I need y'all, I need the two of you, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Clearly, these women are leaders in the church. They are influential. Already in the 300s, 17 centuries ago, a, a preacher named John Chrysostom says this about Judea and Syntyche. Do you see how great is the virtue of these women? He says, as great as that which Christ referred to his apostles. He says that they, their names are in the book of life. John says, these two women contributed no small part. Y'all, if there's a misunderstanding between two leaders in the church, you better believe that's going to cause anxiety in the church as a whole. And Paul is worried about this. I think that's anxiety number one. I think anxiety number two is just kind of a general lack of peace, right, within the, the whole church. And I think it's based on a limited human perspective. And the reason why I think this anxiety is there, it's not just between two leaders, it's also in the church as a whole, is because of the two promises that Paul makes about peace, okay? You can see these, these promises in verse 7 and verse 9, and I'm going to read these out loud. Paul says, first, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's plural, now he's talking about communal unrest, and he promises that the peace of God will guard their hearts. Then in verse 9, he says, the God of peace, God himself, will be with you. Okay, so Paul says, when you receive this peace, you will think, I should be more worried, right? By all human accounts, I should be more stressed, but beyond even my own comprehension, I am content. I have peace from God. Now, I don't think Paul would write these two promises in the fourth chapter unless there were some real issues in the church. Some difficulty that the Philippians had attaining peace and harmony in their community. That's, that's the second anxiety I see. 
The third anxiety, I think, has to do with the Philippians' relationship with Paul. He says that they are concerned, concerned for his financial needs. Okay? Now, in verse 18, Paul says that he had received monetary gifts from them. And we don't know what this money was for. It could have been used for all of Paul's travel expenses. It could have been used for the poor. Paul often asked for financial contributions for poor Christians. But here's, here's what I love about the majority of this chapter. Paul goes out of his way to say that he's grateful for the money, but not for the reasons they may want. Okay? I'm going to walk through these verses to show you kind of the anxiety in this church. Okay? He says, at last, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Let's say this, these bolded words out loud with each other. I am not saying this because I am in need. Okay, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This is really interesting. Paul says, I can survive just fine without your money. He keeps going. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, because I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay. Paul says, even if you Philippians didn't send this money to me, Christ would get me through whatever I face. And then Paul keeps doubling down on this theme. He says... Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. Y'all were the only ones who donated. But then again, he says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. Okay, let's pause right there for a second. This is, this is a moment where our culture and, and the culture at the time is going to seem very different, okay? Why is Paul being so strange? about thanking them for this gift. Why couldn't he have said, thanks for the cash, see y'all later, right? He could have been so much simpler. Is he overcomplicating this? The short answer is no. The Roman culture at the time had all of these social expectations when one person gave money to the other. They had this whole system where if you were a patron and you were a wealthy Roman citizen and you offered money to someone else, they now were in your debt. It was kind of like the mafia. It was like, I know you didn't ask for help. Now I gave you help, and now you've got to scratch my back, right? That, 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 that was all the culture at the time. And Paul has to make sure he threads this perfect needle to not get trapped by their cultural expectations. And so I love what he does here. Paul is very smart. He doesn't thank them for the money. He thanks God for the money. And he's sure to say, hey, by the way, I didn't need it. I didn't ask for it, and I could have gotten along just fine without it. And yet, it was good for you, for your sake, to give money. And if you have any needs, I'm sure God will provide for them. Isn't that amazing? I think Paul is a very smart man. 
And I think he's an amazing pastor because he cares about them as human beings with insecurities and cultural limitations and petty squabbles. And he wants more for them than the anxiety that they have. This is why in verse 4 he says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Say it with me, everybody in this church. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If joy is the noun, then rejoice is the verb. Express your joy to God. Thank Him and adore Him and appreciate Him. Say out loud what delights you about Him. Now, I, I don't think Paul is saying, hey guys, just lighten up. Just change your mood. I think he's saying, see the real gifts you have in your life from God and thank him for those things. This will free you to let go of all this self-preoccupation and fretfulness that you have going on. Be grateful. Rejoice in the Lord. He even gives them a list to, to think about. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, I heard some of y'all saying this out loud. You couldn't even help yourself. The verses are so good. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Our human minds always want to attach to something. Paul knows that, and he says, instead of occupying yourself with all this anxiety, just turn your attention to the lovely, enriching, beautiful things in this good world. So, that's chapter 4. And I think we could summarize it like this. If we want to hold fast to Jesus, if we want to maintain our attention on him and focus on him, we must rejoice and pray and think well. We've got to rejoice. We've got to celebrate what God has done and the gifts he's given us. And when we have requests, Paul says, take them to God. Pray to him with all your petitions and requests. But then finally, and I want to spend some time on this, you need to think well. Occupy your minds with this list of good things. And I don't think it's too controversial to say that I think we are tempted to fill our minds with a lot of things that wouldn't make it on this list. Is that fair to say? We fill up our brains with all sorts of ugly and boring trash that makes us miserable and anxious. We consume lies and comforting myths. Our minds are constantly attending to whatever is scandalous, whatever is corrupt, whatever is shallow. And I don't think it's that controversial to say that the internet and our TVs and our phones and social media are not our friends here. I don't think it's even accurate to say they're stealing our joy. I think we're giving it to them. I think we offer up our joy to all these sources and technologies on a silver platter. And every time we go back to them, we're just asking for constant streams of things to be worried about, more sources of anxiety, endless content of items to fret about. And this is just not the way of Jesus. There's this theologian named Dallas Willard who had a conversation with a friend, and he asked him, if you could just use one word, just one word to describe Jesus, what would you use? And his friend didn't know what to say, didn't know how to, how do you summarize Jesus in one word? And so Dallas Willard offered to give his word. He said, Jesus was relaxed. Have you ever thought about that? 
Have you ever looked at the life of Jesus and just seen how not anxious he is? He's always going about his business walking. You never see Jesus run anywhere. He's not hurried. He's not worried. He's not fretting. He can be interrupted. Have you ever noticed that? He's on his way to somewhere and someone who needs him interrupts him and he isn't frustrated. How dare you take away from my important schedule? He's, he's totally interruptible. And yet, he also makes time to be alone with his father in prayer. He goes away from the crowds, goes up to a mountain and prays. It's kind of annoying how relaxed Jesus is. If you're a worried person, it will frustrate you to read about him because he's so relaxed. And worst of all, if you're a worried person like me, you may not like some of what he taught. In the Sermon on the Mount, man, Jesus sounds like a hippie. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet, your Heavenly Father feeds them. He says, aren't you not much more valuable than they are? I want you to hear this question that I'm about to read from Jesus. And think about it as if he was talking directly to you. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? My answer, my answer is, I don't know, Jesus, but I'll try. I mean, I'll try to add more time to my life by worrying. I think I'm pretty good at it. He says, why do you worry about clothes? Don't you see how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. I tell you, not even King Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God closes the clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry. Do you see how those things are contrasted with each other? Faith and worry? Right? The more you worry, the more you are one of little faith. If there's one thing you left with for today's sermon, for Philippians chapter 4, it would be this truth. Start with, worrying adds nothing to my life. Worrying itself adds nothing to my life. Planning for the future is wise. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fretting about things we cannot control. Anxious hand-wringing about the future. Empty worry about all the things that are going on in our life. This does not add anything to my life, and especially not anything with my relationship with Jesus. And yet, what I love about what Jesus and Paul say is they don't just say, hey, stop worrying. They actually give you an alternative form of life opposed to that kind of anxiety, right? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord and pray. Present your requests to God and think well. These are the, this is the kind of life I would have for you instead of all of that anxiety. And Jesus finishes his, his Sermon on the Mount by saying, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things you worry about shall be given unto you. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, so here's our series, right? We want to focus on Jesus. We don't want to be distracted, okay? And there will be distractions, 
But remember this. I'm a preacher, so I, I used alliteration for all of us, okay? First, we've got to rethink our circumstances in light of Jesus. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is revisit the story of Jesus. Go back to his words and his deeds in the Gospels. Look over them again and imitate him. The third is remember what Jesus has done for you. Ask yourself, where would I be if I didn't know Jesus? And fourth and finally, rejoice in all of his gifts. So rethink, revisit, remember, and rejoice. That's how we hold fast to Jesus. And I really think it's possible by the power of his Holy Spirit that the church could become as relaxed as Jesus, as worry-free as our Lord, because Paul promises the God of peace will be with us. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in him. Let's pray for that peace. <clears throat> Father, there are so many worries and anxieties in our midst today. And we really are convinced so many times in life that we can add to our lives by worrying. We can make our lives better if we fret. We can fix all of our problems if we're just stressed enough about them. But Father, change our minds. Help us see that we can believe what Jesus and Paul said. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious because we can trust you. You are the God of peace. In your own nature, you are completely in harmony and calm and peace. And you offer to give us that peace which transcends our limited human understanding. Father, we pray that we would explore the way of Jesus that we would rejoice in him, that we would take our request to you, and that we would think well. We pray all this in his name. Amen.